that you grow close. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You may be seated. There's a story told of a Frenchman, an Italianman, a German, and a Jew who were walking through a desert. And they were all parched. And the Frenchman said, I am so thirsty. I must have a glass of Cabernet. And the Italian man said, I am so thirsty. I must have a full glass of Chianti. And the German man said, I am so thirsty. I must have a frothy beer. And the Jew said, I am so thirsty. I must have diabetes. As a whole, we are a worrisome lot. We are a people that always seem to expect the worst. Deborah Lipstadt wrote in her New York Times editorial just a couple weeks ago that the Jewish Telegraph, when always forced with an economy of words, would say, start worrying details to follow. And part of that is because we indeed are wired in many ways to be a little pessimistic to be frightful, to always fall into this notion of comfort, which is surrounded by fear for us. But what's interesting is that on this Chag, on this holiday, we're commanded that we're not allowed to do that. You see, there are three pilgrimage festivals. There is Sukkot, Pesach, and Shavuot. And on Pesach, we say in the Amidah, and we say when we make Kiddush, Zman Cheirutenu. This recalls the time of our freedom and our redemption. Fifty days later on Shavuot, we say Zman Matan Toratenu. This is the day in which we receive the Torah. This is the day where we become one with God and we are people who are part of a law. But when it says Sukkot, it doesn't say it's our harvest day. It doesn't say it's the days after Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. It doesn't say it's the hot day. It says Zman Simchatenu. It's a time of joy. And we are actually obligated to be happy and to think positively and optimistically. And I want to share with you three examples, one biblical, one happening in the real world, and another one that gives us credible reason to be inspired that I think cause us on this Shabbat to not play into the world of fear and worrying that, God forbid, we must have diabetes, but rather celebrating the gifts in which we have. And indeed, Georgia mentioned this very notion when she talked in her Devar Torah beautifully about the luchot, the tablets that were smashed. And the rabbis have asked for many years, why did Moses smash the luchot? Did Moses have an anger problem? Well, maybe. There are lots of times where Moses gets angry at B'nai Israel and even at God, and maybe it was out of sheer anger. Maybe it was out of frustration. Or maybe it was because, looking at it through a positive light, that the moment that Moses would give the law to the Jewish people, the Israelite people, and they were worshiping an Egel Hazahav, a golden calf, they would instantly be in the category of transgression, of sinning. You see, before they have the law, they don't know that they're committing a sin. But once they get the law, then you're in the category of sinning. So what does Moses do to make sure they don't fall into the category of sinning? Breaks the tablets. If you break the tablets, there's no binding law. And with no binding law, all the Israelite people 
are no longer in the category of sinning. So maybe, just maybe, Moses didn't have an anger problem. Maybe, just maybe, he wasn't so frustrated and upset. Maybe his love for all of B'nai Israel, his love for all the Israelite people was so great that he didn't want to put them in the category of transgression, especially a transgression of the law that would be so egregious. So instead he broke the law as to take that pain of all those broken pieces and start that process all over again as opposed to putting all of B'nai Israel in that category. That's the difference in reading between optimism and pessimism. Between what the Torah tells us, dan giving someone a meritorious judgment, always finding favor, the benefit of the doubt, versus always assuming the worst. I'll give you another example of an article I read yesterday. It was about a girl who was the subject of cyberbullying. And cyberbullying is an epidemic today, especially in the teenage world. So many kids have used the weapon of the computer to hurt other kids. And for some reason or another, we feel that we say things in emails we would never say to another person's face. And we say things in talkbacks for people we don't even know that would be horrible and cruel, as if it's like this bile that releases from our body that comes out through our fingers and we type them and it hurts the other and we don't care about the pain it causes. We think we're justified and we think some justification might be in what we've received too. So this young girl who's 13 years young received some nasty post about her looks from some anonymous person, threw it right on, and it crushed her soul. She was saddened and pained, and she cried. And what did she decide to do? Thank God she didn't decide to hurt herself. And thank God she didn't go looking for all the people who caused her pain. But what did she do? She decided to make her own campaign. She went to the local drugstore, and she bought five big stacks of sticky post-it notes. And she wrote positive statements on each one's. You look good today. I love your smile. Great shoes. Nice job in math. She customized them for every person in the school, and she went and put them on all their lockers. She put them on people's books before a test, saying, you're going to do great. You studied hard. And she combated the negativity and the mean with love and optimism. The story got so viral that it was picked up by newspapers and I was able to read it because it happened in Canada. But it was a beautiful example of someone combating that evil weapon that we can use sometimes in our technology and cyberbullying and pushing back on it in optimism and positivity and making a difference. What a beautiful example of how that works. The last example was something that warmed my heart brought a tear to my eye the day after Yom Kippur. Let me give you a little bit of background. When I was in rabbinical school, I played the role of big brother to a young boy who I'm going to call Michael to maintain his anonymity. Michael was a sweet boy, about 14 years young. He was tall and lengthy, very bright, very funny, not very athletic, a little awkward, but kind and giving. Michael was living full-time with his mother. Michael's father was a rabbi. Michael's father had admitted when Michael was about 10 years young, maybe 11, that he was gay. His congregation decided 
there is at a very large congregation that they didn't want a gay rabbi. So they tendered him his resignation, forced his resignation immediately without benefits. He was fired for his sexual orientation. And because of that, he couldn't find employment anywhere as a rabbi. He was teaching in a few different places here and there, brilliant scholar. And of course, this had effects at home. And Michael had some problems from it. He had no siblings, he was an only child, and this divided who he was. So about once a week, I would spend time with Michael. We would go for walks in Riverside Park. We would talk about things going on in school. We would do math together, although I wasn't so good at math or history. And we would just have fun. And I kind of watched him grow over time. And I think about Michael a lot these days. I think about Michael's mom, a sweet, kind person. And I think about Michael's dad also and where he is. And that, that moment where I played big brother to Michael actually had much more impact on me than I probably did with Michael. I share this story with you because the day after Yom Kippur, on Sunday, a colleague and friend of mine who I went to rabbinical school with, graduated a few years before I did, who was, before he was the rabbi in Washington, D.C., was the rabbi in Ridgewood, New Jersey, here in Bergen County, wrote an open letter to his congregation announcing that he and his wife of 20 years were divorcing because he came to realize that he is a homosexual male and that he loves his wife and his children very much, but that, as he said, there's a text in the Talmud where it teaches us that if our insides don't match our outsides, we're not being the person that we should be, and that that text has been talking to him for many years and that he felt the need to come out. But to me, what I applaud more than anything else, besides Rabbi Steinloff's courage in coming out was a remarkable thing that happened in less than 20 years. And that Rabbi Steinloff's letter to his congregation was accompanied by a letter from the president signed and endorsed by the entire board of this large synagogue, 150-year-old synagogue with over 1,000 families in Washington, D.C. It's a storied synagogue. The president and the board stood firmly behind Rabbi Steinloff's decision with a deep sensitivity to his personal life, to his family, to his wife, who are part of their community and will remain part of their community, to the personal choices he has to make, to his orientation and lifestyle. And at no point in no conversation from the board's level will his, will his tenure be addressed at the congregation. And I think to myself, when we look at the news and read the newspaper, it's a scary world today. It's even scarier today than it was yesterday, and I'm afraid it's going to be scarier tomorrow. And if we watch the news enough, we could be afraid to walk out of our front door, yet alone go to the airport and go anywhere else. For God knows what's going to happen to us, whether it's a, a serial killer or Ebola, some kind of horrible thing that could catch us by surprise and cause all of us pain and even death. But here's a case. In less than 20 years of a radical change of acceptance of inclusivity, of openness, just like the Sukkah asks us to be, where a people, a movement, has become sensitive and understanding. There are some people in the world who aren't necessarily in favor of gay rabbis, and some who are. You know what? That is the beauty of living in America, where all of our views and opinions are heard 
and understood, and we can disagree with civility and understanding. And by no means am I standing here wagging a finger at all of you telling you, this is what you have to believe. I believe that someone's orientation shouldn't affect whether or not they should be a clergy. I think it's something that they're born into. That's my personal belief. And I also personally believe that whether we're in favor or not, that it is the civil rights issue of our generation. And to see, to see a congregation in such a short period of time, in a significant congregation, stand behind their clergy person with sensitivity and embrace and understanding, to me is a moment to applaud optimism and change. And to realize how far we've come in such a short period. Five years ago, same-sex marriage was legal in two states. Today, I think it's 34. Five years. That is a blink of the eye in the history of the United States, and it is a millisecond in the history of humanity. And to think how far we have come in this time is reason for us to be proud. Now, some might say that's because of the pace of the world in which we live in, and that might be true. But when it comes to advances of sensitivity, acknowledgement, inclusivity, and people feel uncomfortable in their own skin and own orientation, it's a moment for us to take pride in our advances. In a few minutes, we're going to daven Musaf. And then after that, we're going to say Kiddush. I don't know if we're going to say Kiddush here or in the sukkah, depending on the rain, but the Kiddush is the same. And when we say the Kiddush for Yom Tov, we say, Zaman Simchatenu. This is a time to rejoice. And in order for us to rejoice, we've got to start being a little bit more optimistic, a little less defeatist, a little less worried, a little less succumbing to fear, a little less panicked, a little less anxious, and start seeing these moments of shining brilliance that we can recognize as advances that make the world a better place. Maybe we see those moments and the understanding of Moses looking after the people of Israel as opposed to having a temper problem. Maybe we see those moments in teenage girls who want to fight bullying with kindness and goodness, and we can be positively infected from that. And maybe we see these moments in societal advances of embracing and understanding and recognizing the change we've made in such a difference. But in all of these moments and so many more in our personal and communal lives, we see these sparks of light that represent optimism and opportunity and gifts. And that is Man Simchatenu. That is a time for rejoicing. My blessing for all of us on this Chag is that those moments of optimism and happiness not be limited to the eight days of this holiday, but that they continue to inspire us. So that times of worry and fear, we don't take in a cavalier way. But times of celebration, recognition, and appreciation, we stand firm and tall, and everyone can be proud of the way in which we have advanced and achieved. If we do that, then the lessons of Sukkot will inspire us throughout the year. May that be God's will. Amen.